We're going to read uh, the Bible together just now. We're going to read from Luke chapter 24. We have been following the Easter story through Luke's gospel. We're going to read the last section of the last chapter of Luke's gospel. It's uh, Luke 24 from verse 36. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 1062, page 1062. So Luke chapter 24 from verse 36. John, particularly thinking about the ascension later on this evening, we're going to be reading about that in this passage. So Luke chapter 24 from verse 36, this is God's word. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Well, tonight I'll invite you to open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 24. And to Luke chapter 24 tonight... And we're really going to focus on verses 44 through to the end under the, the theme of the ascension. So here's the question. How can I have confidence as a Christian that everything is going to be okay in the end? How can I have confidence that at the end of my days, everything will be okay when death comes? or when the doctor calls us to come and to sit with him, when the news is poor, when the dark clouds of life are all around, how can a Christian still have joy? How can we come to worship, and although happiness may have evaporated from us, we can have that deeper sense of joy in our souls and in our hearts? How is that possible? How can we keep perspective? Well, it's because of the truth of the gospel. 
And what is the truth of the gospel? Well, it's, it's Christ's death, His resurrection, and His ascension. And the problem is that we often stop at death and resurrection, don't we? We've heard many sermons on the incarnation, on the crucifixion, on the resurrection, but maybe a lot fewer sermons on the ascension. And the ascension is essential. Augustine said that without the ascension, the work of the cross, the work of the cross by Christ would have had no fruit, and that the resurrection would have been trivial without the ascension. So Christ's death, His resurrection, and His ascension cannot be divorced from one another. Each contains immense importance for us to know the fullness of our salvation. To put it another way, the gospel circle is not complete until we apply the work of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And so with that, we're going to look at it deeper tonight. So we'll begin in verse 44. We're going to see three things. And by way of almost introduction to our, our crescendo, we'll see the first opening two points, and then we'll really zoom in on the ascension as we finish. So verses 44 through to verses 46, really we want to call this Jesus contained. Jesus contained. I wonder if you've had one of those light bulb moments recently. Uh, during the week, I've had an awful problem with lock nuts on my car. So on Monday, I tried to get the lock nuts removed, and it proved to be extremely difficult. And I went to one garage, and they said, well, maybe you should go and try a different garage. And I went to the different garage, and they couldn't have the answer. And then I went to the garage that the, the owners of the car, they could, didn't have the answer. They sent me to somebody else. He said he didn't do it anymore, but he sent me to someone else and poured it down. And he said, no problem. A couple of minutes, I'll sort it for you. He got a big steel bar with a point on it and drove it into the nut. There we go. Simple. Okay. <laughs> it was, a, for me, a light bulb moment. Okay. And maybe you've had a light bulb moment. Maybe you've been trying to connect a computer to a printer and it's been driving you nuts. And then you've looked at some online article and it's told you how you can do it. Or maybe it's a mass equation if you're still at university or at school. And someone shows you how to do it and there's great joy. Now, whenever it comes to the ascension, why is it that we're told that Jesus remains on earth for 40 days? Have we ever thought about the significance of that? Why does Jesus not just instantly after the resurrection go to be with his Father? Well, in the 40 days that Jesus walks on the earth, what, what does he do? Well, he comes to Thomas, doesn't he? He personally meets with him, explains to Thomas who he is, shows Thomas his hands, and his doubt fades away. Or what we see in chapter 24, if you come with me to verse 13, what does Jesus do? His first activity as post the resurrection is to go after two people who are walking away from him. He spends time with them. He brings them back to himself. He meets with his disciples. He meets with Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And so Jesus in these 40 days, then what does he do? He takes people continually into the Word. That's what he does with the, the two people on the road to Emmaus. That's what he does in our passage, verse 44. 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What does he do? He takes them into himself, and he has the best Bible study ever known. He starts to show them how Scripture is all about him. And what pieces of Scripture? Well, all of it. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's all about Jesus. Look at verse 45. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. A light bulb moment for them. Oh, now we can see. Whenever the, the Old Testament was, was talking about a king that would come, whose throne would be eternal, it wasn't David and it wasn't Solomon, now we see that it was you. Or, or whenever we see this kingly office or the, the priestly office or the, the office of the prophet, now we see how it's fulfilled in you. Now we see how the Psalms were pointing us to you. How all of it has been pointing us to you. Jesus spends this time with His people explaining the Word. Explaining the Word. And then He tells them that it would be far better for Him to go to be with His Father than to remain with them. And that seems crazy for us, doesn't it, initially? Why, why would it be better for Jesus to then leave His disciples after He's taught them? Surely if He just remained here and taught more people, that would be, that would be for our best. But Jesus says, no, I'm limited by time and space in my human flesh, and so I'll go to the Father, and I'll give you the Helper. And so every believer will be given the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes. He teaches the Bible. He shows them how it's all to do with Him. It's all one story of redemption. It's all one book. Light bulb moments all over the place. It's not just history. It's not just war. It's not just about people or a family. He shows them that He is the missing piece, the Jesus whom the Bible speaks about. And you can imagine their response, I see it. I see you. I understand it. I can see how you've been working all things together. I can see all of the strands coming together. I can see the themes of Scripture in you, Jesus. Jesus contained in the Bible. He's equipping His followers for what's about to come in the next few verses. Jesus contained. Then we go into verses 46 and 47, and what do we see then? As He has taught them the Scripture, then He, he charges them to go out and to proclaim. And so, Jesus is to be proclaimed Verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. He summarizes the gospel for them, he summarizes the good news. He's took them through this massive overview of the Bible, he's shown them the specifics. And if they're really struggling to condense that, He does it for them. He tells them, this is what I want you to go, and I want you to tell people that there's been a legal payment for sin, and it is satisfied. The punishment for sin I have taken. I have served as a substitute. Atonement has been made. 
I have suffered, I have died, and I have rose again. And the significance of that being verse 47. So now you go and now you tell people, all people, that there is a need of repentance. And for those who repent, there is forgiveness of sins. This is what you're to proclaim. You're not to proclaim anything else. You're not to proclaim that I was a a good man. You're not to get sidetracked into other things. What are you to tell people? You're to tell them this, the wonderful good news of the gospel, that the, the cross of Calvary, the empty tomb, and then the ascension that's going to come changes people's lives. And you can imagine the disciples' response, surely, Jesus, this is only for some people. Well, verse 47, this should be proclaimed in all the nations, no one excluded. Go to the Romans, go to the Greeks, go to the barbarians, proclaim to all nations that this is the gospel, and it's for you. And so look at verse 48. You, you are the witnesses of these things. Jesus says to his disciples, it's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to go and to tell. It's your responsibility to be witnesses. It's your job. But Jesus will How could we ever do that? Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Trinity at work, Father, Son, and Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit coming to them. And what will it be like? Well, he goes on to say that it will clothe you. The Spirit will come, and He will clothe you with power from on high. Jesus had to ascend. Why did He have to ascend? He had to go back to His Father's side so that the Spirit could come and so that the Spirit could live within each and every Christian. Here tonight, every person that has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, the one Spirit lives within us all. The power from on high. The Holy Spirit with us everywhere that we go to help us to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so, in Ephesians 4 and verse 8, it says this, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, and in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus gives the Spirit after he has taught his disciples the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is what will build the church. The Bible is what the church will be built on. And so his followers have to understand what's in the book if they're going to build the church. And how are they going to do it? They're going to do it through the power of the Spirit. And so any church, any church that should jettison itself from the Word of God, what will happen? It will crumble. It will not be built upon. It will not be built up. There will be no power of the Spirit within it. Jesus teaches. He equips. And then He sends His disciples out. Go and proclaim this. 
that Christ has suffered and died and rose again and call people to repentance and then extend to them the joy of forgiveness from their sins. Go and be my witnesses. And if we were to apply that really simply tonight, the question is, how are we getting on with the task? Young person here tonight, could it be that the Lord is calling you into the work, into ministry or missionary service? Could it be that someone here feels the call of God to serve Him in a full-time capacity? Whether that is the case or not in your, in your soul tonight, it should be the case for all of us despite where we live or work, that in all of these things we are doing exactly what we read of in Luke 24. Go. Go and tell. Go spread. Go reach people with this news. Go clothe yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is, will you go? Will you tell? Will you be witnesses? And Luke carefully then takes us from that into our, our final section of text, verses 50 to 53, and with the remainder of our time, this is where we want to remain. Jesus Christ contained in old scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, go and proclaim him. Why? Because Jesus Christ forevermore shall reign. And this is where he takes us then into the ascension. Look at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. He taught them. He had summarized the gospel. He had commissioned them. And now to the ascension, now to Bethany, that place that was so significant for Jesus as he arrived into Jerusalem. And as we start to turn our eyes to this part, to Jesus as He, as he lifts up His hands and as He pronounces a blessing on His disciples, verse 51, in the middle of that blessing, while He's pronouncing the blessing to them, it says that He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The work of salvation complete. Jesus takes up the glory now in heaven that He had led off, that he had, that he had taken off from Himself. As it were, He had been dispatched from the throne room of heaven to come and to do a job. And as He had done that job, He had succeeded in it. And now, after He has taught His disciples, after He has sent them out, He blesses them, and that's the, the last thing that they see. It's the last thing that they hear. Jesus' words to them as He is caught up into heaven. In verse 52, they worshiped Him. Now, this is an essential part of the teaching of the New Testament church. In 1 Timothy 3 and 16 says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 
And then in Romans 8, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? And who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? You see, death, resurrection, ascension, exalted, and then intercession, all bound together. And so this historical event that Luke records for us really did happen. Where is Jesus? He is in heaven. And where is heaven? It's where Jesus is. And people will start to pick holes in the Christian faith. They'll say, there's, there's no way that the ascension could have happened. Really? It's not, the, it's not the strangest thing that we believe, is it? Right from Christ's birth, we just confessed it together. Born of the Virgin. Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate. He died and He rose again. He made dead people live. He gave people back their sight. He healed people who were paralyzed. The ascension, of course, the ascension is true. It's an historical fact. And what is the significance of it? What is the significance of the ascension? Well, Jesus goes, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 tells us, and He takes His seat at the Father's right hand. Why is that important? It's important for each of us here tonight because that tells us that the work is finished. He has rested. He has taken His seat in glory, the work completed. He is the seated Savior. And He sits and He intercedes for His people, Hebrews 7 and verse 25. The position of Jesus in that seat is important because the work's completed. He will not have to rise off his seat to do anymore. He'll not have to touch up the work. He'll not have to come back and, and redo it. When Christ gets off his seat, that's when he'll return. That's when he will come back and the Mount of Olives, as we read in Zechariah, will be split in two. His work is finished. He does not need to stoop off his throne again. Instead, he takes his seat at his Father's side, crowned in glory and with honor. And then from his seat, what does he do? This is important for us to understand. What does he do? Several things that we will see. He rules the church. He's the head of the church. And so, from His throne in glory, He is building the church, He is keeping the church, He is shaping the church, He is adding to the church. We are His bride, and He won't lose us. He rules the church. Colossians tells us, from His throne, He holds the entire universe together. Every atom governed from the heavenly throne. And so, if we were to go into our science class, or if you're queens and you go into your science lecture, and some of your, your professors are trying to figure out how this whole world manages to not combust upon itself, the Christian can simply say, it's because the Lord holds it all together. It's because He's on the right hand of His Father. All things, Colossians says, held together for Him and by Him and through Him. The seat of power 
He rules the church. He holds the universe together. He rules the world. Kings and governments under His authority, every nation directed from the heavenly throne room. His enemies are but a footstool for Him. And Jesus, as He sits there, is arrayed in all of His splendor and glory and majesty. And there, not only does He rule the church, does He hold the universe together, does He rule the world, but there, for you, Christian, He intercedes. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus brings our needs and our requests before our Father. We now have one who speaks on our behalf, Jesus making intervention for our interest. And not only does it end there, Hebrews 4 goes on to tell us that as Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, He also sympathizes with us in our weakness. This is really important for us as we have to journey upon life's difficult paths of suffering. Is it just that our God is cold and absent from us, aloof, doesn't really care? No, that's not the God that we serve. Because of Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand, He sits there and He sympathizes with us. He feels all that we feel. He comes and He meets us through the power of the Spirit to what to bring comfort and to bring help to us. And see, the ascension really is essential. It's doing so much for us. It's the seal upon Christ's earthly ministry. It's proof of His divine identity. And so, verse 52, you can see now why the disciples, as they understand all of these things, they, they don't plead for the Savior to remain. The light bulb has come on. And in verse 52, they worshiped Him. They worship Him, and they return to Jerusalem with great joy. And they're continually in the temple blessing Him. They knew that this changed everything. And they knew that as they witnessed the Lord ascend into glory, that this, this was the beginning. It was the end, and it was the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the, the new world. John D. Rhodes talks about how the, the tomb of Christ was the womb of the whole new world. That this is the beginning of, of what's going to come. And in this, we have the guarantee that we will be part of it. Jesus, what the Bible says, is our first fruits. He's the first one to experience this. His resurrection body, His perfect humanity. And so tonight, because of the ascension, we are sure of what has happened to Christ will also happen to us, to all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as it were, we take Luke 24, and it's our pattern. How could, how could we summarize it? We could summarize it like this. Worship Him. Witness for Him and then wait for His return. That's the job of the church, isn't it? 
to worship, to witness, and to wait for His return. Jesus goes to glory so that we could go out and tell of His glory. He ascended so that He could send us out. Salvation complete. And then the task of proclaiming salvation has begun and will not end until He returns. Feels like we've only started to scratch the surface of the ascension, but our time is almost gone. Let me take us, I have a slide here, let me take us to the Heidelberg Catechism. And to the Heidelberg Catechism and, and verse, or question 49, the question is this, what benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? And this is the answer. First, that He is our advocate in the presence of His Father in heaven. We've thought a little bit about that. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that as He is the head, will also take us to be with Him. Thirdly, that He sends us His Spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things on earth. Christian, your confidence tonight as we finish thinking about the ascension should be twofold. Salvation complete for you, Christ has taken his seat. And then our future bright because Jesus has promised that he will return and we will be made like him again. That's why the disciples have confidence. Confidence that whatever happens to them, because the Lord is in glory, that he will take us to be with himself. We could put it like this He will not leave us in the grave, but we will rise. He will call us home. The Lord is our salvation. And so one day soon, the Lord will return again. He will come from glory and He will sweep His bride into His arms. And this is our confidence that whatever comes our way, this is our hope, that Christ is at the Father's right hand, and that He will return. Jesus, the King of glory. And so, here's how Psalm 24 puts it. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that who? That the King of glory might come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so we should lift up our heads. We should see the King of glory going to His Father's right hand, putting on His splendor and His majesty and His power, and then we should come to the very throne in confidence and in prayer because we have been washed by His blood, saved by grace, confident that we are His and that He is ours and that not one of His children shall be lost. He shall lead us safely home, the seated King of salvation. We shall worship Him. Amen.